It's no use talking like this. You won't know what I mean. Only, it's been a long while since we enlisted out of this classroom. So long, I thought maybe the whole world had learned by this time. Only now they're sending babies, and they won't last a week. I shouldn't have come on leave. Up at the front, you're alive or you're dead, and that's all. You can't fool anybody about that very long. And up there, we know we're lost and done for, whether we're dead or alive. Three years we've had of it. Four years. And every day a year. And every night a century. And our bodies are earth and our thoughts are clay and we sleep and eat with death. We're done for because you can't live that way and keep anything inside you. I shouldn't have come on leave. I'll go back tomorrow. I've got four days more, but I can't stand it here. I'll go back tomorrow. I'm sorry. Welcome to Your Pick, a film podcast. I'm Tatum. And I'm Geneva. We are two friends who love movies and love sharing them with each other. Each week, we take turns picking a film that is close to our hearts and talk about why it moves us, to tears, to laughter, and everything in between. We celebrate the craft of filmmaking, as well as the unique and personal ways we find meaning in the movies we watch. Uh, can you go ahead and kickstart this episode by updating us on anything you've watched this week? Sure. Uh, just two things this week. Um, I didn't end up having a whole lot of time to watch new things. Uh, I watched the movie Rain Man for the first time. First uh, time, to- really? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. The Tom Cruise, Dustin Hoffman uh, movie from the 80s. It was, I was a little wary about it. Um. Because it is obviously about a, um, it's about a, a man played by Tom Cruise who discovers that he has an older brother he never knew about. And that older brother is um, an autistic, uh, what's the word, um, savant, I think. Um, obviously, this is a condition that there's a lot more research and awareness about now than there was back in the 80s. So I was a little worried about how... Um, you know, whether it would not age super well. And honestly, I I really don't know enough about this subject to give a really fair um, assessment of that. But I will say I the movie was pretty good. It was better than I expected. I thought the relationship between the two of them was very well developed. Um, Dustin Hoffman is very committed. I, I don't know how his performance is looked at today in the autistic community, but... Um, I believe at least at the time he was very committed to um, kind of working with members of the autistic community and trying to represent them well to the the best of his ability. Um, Tom Cruise, man, he's such a good actor. He's <laughs> he really such a is. good actor. <laughs> you know, working with someone who's doing such a, you know, a very big performance. Um, I think he does a really good job staying grounded while also being a a character who's kind of um, blustery in his own way. He's kind of a, you know, young, selfish hotshot who who learns um, how to, you know, be a little bit less selfish and a little more loving. Um, and he, do, he do, does very well with that character arc. So, yeah, um, overall, I was kind of mixed on the movie, but I definitely don't regret watching it. I think it's pretty well done for what it is. I would be very interested to hear <laughs> opinions on, on all sides of the um 
um, you know, all all different types of opinions about it. But yeah, uh, it's it's a very well made well made movie. So especially if you're trying to go and watch all of the Best Picture winners, which is what I'm trying to do, um, you know, it'll it'll be a an interesting watch. Yeah, that's. Uh, I would say mm-hmm. that for me, that's also a movie that I I wonder. I I don't I don't know how well this has aged and how well it accru- um like accurately represents certain sectors of the autistic community and so because of that I'm like I don't really know how to feel about (laughs) about Rain Man um and I know Dustin Hoffman can also be kind of a problematic actor sometimes um but yeah it's it's yeah it's an interesting concept I'm like I don't really know where to fall on Rain Man so (laughs) yeah (laughs) if there's anyone listening to this that is autistic or you know has any sort of connection to that like reality of you know being an autistic person or or this movie or whatever send us an email I would love to hear you know what your thoughts on the movie yeah yeah absolutely that would be really really fascinating to hear um uh the only other thing that I knew that I watched this week was the uh miniseries version of Mansfield Park from the 1980s uh Mansfield Park is um Fairly unpopular opinion, but it's my favorite Jane Austen novel. Um, but it is also notoriously very um, divisive and difficult to get into. I love it in part because I relate to the heroine, but a lot of people can't relate to the heroine because she's very shy and anxious and she's not witty. She's not um, charming and um, glowing the way that someone like an Elizabeth Bennet is. So... You know, it's. <laughs> I'm gonna slightly push back against that. Okay, mm-hmm. said well, just like I would not use all of those adjectives to describe you, but okay. Oh well, thank you very much. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely she's definitely an accurate rep- a representation of how I feel like I was in mm. middle school, and I feel okay. like I've I have grown out of some of these traits, but I still, you know, it. I still feel them in my soul, and so I see her, and I think, yeah nice to see someone who I can identify (laughs) with get her happy ending um anyway all that is to say is there have been two more recent versions of Mansfield Park there was a movie in 1999 and then a tv movie I think version in the 2000s but both of them change certain aspects of the novel um the 99 one in particular really really changes a lot um, and both of them kind of work to make Fanny Price, the heroine, less shy and anxious and mousy and more, you know, the sort of independent spirit um, woman who is too, you know, advanced for her time and that sort of thing, which is fine if for certain novels, but I don't think that really serves Mansfield Park well, and it certainly doesn't serve well what I love about the novel. Um, okay, all of that being said... <laughs> The 80s miniseries version is much more faithful to the novel, but unfortunately, it's also really bad. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, it's it's unfortunate. It's just, uh, I don't know. Watching it, I was like, adaptation really is an art form. I have so much respect for what writers like Andrew Davies did with um, Pride and Prejudice and Bleak House and the the dozens of other novels that he has adapted into movies and miniseries throughout the years in ways that are fairly faithful to the spirit of the novel but are also really interesting for to watch from a modern audience and manage to bring out different layers and are not 
you know, I don't know, stagey in in the bad sense of the term. This version of Mansfield Park is very accurate to the text of the novel, at least from what I can remember. It's been a couple years since I last reread it. But it's just very boring. The casting is not good at all. Um, Edmund is way too old, even though I love Nicholas Farrell. He's great in Chariots of Fire, but he's way too old. He's not right for Edmund, the woman who plays Fanny Price. How old is he as an actor? And then how old is the character supposed to be? Honestly, I don't know how old is he he is as an actor. I I believe the character is supposed to be early 20s, 21, 22, somewhere in there. Um, the woman who plays Fanny Price, I don't remember her name, but she is, she's really not good. <laughs> I've seen her in other things more recently where she's an older, maybe more mature actress, and I've liked her a lot. But here she's just, her mannerisms, the way she's kind of fluttery and the way that she speaks, it's just, it's, I know, it's, <laughs> I have so much love for the novel. And so I'm just like, she's not my Fanny Price. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I truly don't know a better way to, represent her on screen because she is such an internal character but it's it it's not good um basically almost all of the casting is terrible henry crawford is not nearly charming enough um mary crawford's fairly charming but she speaks in this very particular way that kind of gets on my nerves i will say the one best part is mrs norris who's played by anna massey here is great because mrs norris is an absolutely evil character and Anna Massey does a great job of making you want to wring her neck every time she's on screen. Uh, she's fantastic. Other than that, yeah. So Mansfield Park from the 1980s. Um, if you're a completist and you want to see every version of Mansfield Park, which is what I did, I mean, watch it, but it's it's not good. It was very disappointing. It took me a long time to get through. So yeah, that was that was what I watched this week. Mm. All right. Well, I'm I'm sorry that that was not everything you wanted it to be. <laughs> I will say there is nothing to inspire you creatively like watching something that is bad and feeling <laughs> like even I could do this better. It's like this you got know? made. So <laughs> <laughs> I pulled out my my copy of Mansfield Park and was like, let me let me look through this. I feel like there are ways that I could do this better. G- so give me a crack at it. <laughs> give me a crack at it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well. Speaking of television shows that I really struggled to get through. Um, so, so okay, before I actually get into that, though. So, I just want to say I was sick with COVID this week. And so, I spent several days at home on my couch by myself with no energy to do anything other than watch copious amounts of content so my list of what I've been watching this week is quite long. Um, so I apologize if this section is quite long, but a lot of the things that I watched are really, um, in my opinion, important uh, shows or movies that represent very important ideas that people um, might not otherwise be aware of or exposed to or knowledgeable of. Um, so anyway, so to go back to my like lame transition that I said before. So I did watch um, a TV show this week. It is um, a Netflix limited series um, created by the very famous, newly like well-known uh, horror director, Mike Flanagan. And it's called Midnight Mass. Geneva talked about it um, way back, like a few months ago on this show. But um, I finally got around to watching it. And um, the first 
<laughs> four and a half episodes of this show are absolutely intolerable. I <laughs> wanted to throw something at the television. I hated it so much. It was too slow for Tatum. I kept texting I, her being like, keep going. I was. I, I really encourage you ugh. to keep going. I was so bored. I could not take the writing style. Mike Flanagan is known for his like cheesy ass monologues, but I do not. I am basically 100% accurate when I say that the first four and a half episodes of this show, all of the dialogue is monologues. Everything is monologues. <laughs> it is someone saying something and talking for three minutes, if not fucking longer than three minutes about something. And then a person responds with another three to eight minute monologue. And then they resp- it's like it's so many monologues that is straight up telling you what's happening, how the characters are feeling. It is the epitome of telling, not showing. And I hated it so much. But I pushed through because... In addition to Geneva's opinions, I had heard many great things about this show from other people. I'd read articles about it. And by the time we hit the, you know, four and a half episode mark, I was incredibly, incredibly uh, riveted and engaged. And it, it just, it took a hold of me and would not let me go. Um, so as someone who was raised very religious and not even was raised, but as an adult, I was a very religious, uh, very devout Christian for many years and is no longer. Um, it is a very honest and brutal, fantastical interpretation of the complexity of religion, um, the complexity of the devout of Christianity specifically, whether that be Catholicism or Protestantism, even though it is very heavily leaning towards Catholic, but it can lend itself to Protest- Protestantism as well. Um, it, it asks a lot of really important, deep, challenging questions about Christianity. And I think that it is something that all, all Christians, anyone who has any sort of relationship to Christianity should watch, whether you are still a Christian or questioning or you've left Christianity or whatever I feel like there is something to be taken away from it regardless of your relationship to Christianity um so I would highly 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 recommend I would honestly say you could skip the first four and a half episodes look up a Wikipedia plot summary and you're good to go (laughs) (laughs) I would not recommend that just me personally, I actually really connected to some of the monologues, but your mileage may, very much may, may vary. Yes. I just want to say if you are, because I think you and I talked about this, but the reception of this show is very divided in the sense that there are people who like, I loved the last half, but the first half was unbearable. And then there's some people who are like, it worked for me yeah, all There are all many around. people who, have, who agree So for people who align with my perspective, I just want to say you can skip the first four and a <laughs> half episodes. Look just make up sure a plot you get summary. acquainted with the characters. And then, yes. Yeah. Look up a plot summary. You're fine. And then jump in halfway through episode four. Um, but anyway, that's Midnight Mass. Highly, highly recommend. Yeah. Highly, highly recommend. Highly recommend. Incredible. Um, anyway, so that's my first thing. And then I'm going to kind of just say the titles of the next few things and then 
try and break them down as briefly as possible. Again, I was very sick, so I watched a lot of things this week. Um, I also have been continuing to watch a lot of the television show Reservoir Dogs, which is an mm. FX on, not Reservoir Dogs, that is a Quentin Tarantino movie. <laughs> Reservation <laughs> Dogs, yeah. <laughs> which is a FX on Hulu television show. Um, it is taking so many twists and turns that I did not expect. Um, when I started the show, I thought it was just going to be a show about you know, this group of kids who are friends living on this reservation and then just kind of like living their kid lives. <laughs> and it is not that at all. Um, the, it's, it's not uncommon for the show to have specific episodes where they focus on one particular character and their own individual struggles. And the whole story revolves around there was a boy who was a part of this friend group and he's the cousin of one of them and the brother of the other and the best friend of the other. And um, he committed suicide. And that's kind of the, the jumping off point for the show. And so we learn a lot about um, what is like how we, we learn about his relationship with his uncle, with his father, with his, you know, sister, with his cousin, with his whatever. And we get flashbacks to when he was alive. We have present day. We get flashbacks to um, like histories of ancestors. And it's just, it's very profound in that it tells stories of Native American people without being a show that's like, this is about Native American people. Like it's respected. It's respectful of the culture from my viewpoint. I'm not a Native American, so I can't say that for, for sure. But it seems to be very respectful of the culture while also not making their culture like the token of the show. It's like these are real people that just happen to be Native American and their culture is relevant to who they are, but it's not the entirety of who they are. And um, it's a really, really beautiful, beautiful show that I would highly recommend. I'm about halfway through season two. Um, and I'm very, very impressed. Um, it's very moving. Uh, it's very beautiful. It's very well acted. Um, and I think it's telling some really important stories and representing some pretty important people that have in, you know, the past historically not been represented really at all. Um, and so that's actually kind of a, a theme a little bit in terms of the things I'm going to say that I watched this week. I, I've mentioned this in the past. Um, I'm kind of in a point of my life where I'm kind of sick of watching straight white American stories. I can't really stand it anymore. Um, and so I want to keep diving into other areas. And then the more I dive into those areas, the less tolerant I am of American white straight content. Cause I'm like, there's so much like, why are we focusing on this? Why is this the only thing that's being seen when there is incredible, miraculous other perspectives out there that are important? Um, but anyway, so Reservation Dogs being one of them. Um, I also watched a, a, an indie movie from 1994 called Go Fish, which is a um, a well-known kind of cult classic film in the lesbian community. It is about a bunch of um, early 20s lesbian women who it follows one main character, but kind of her relationship with her friends. And it's literally just talking about what it's like to date as a lesbian at that age. And it does a really good job of just like representing lesbian culture. Like this movie was made in 1994 and I was watching it. And I'm like, 
did this person just like come into my apartment and record all of my conversations with my friends? Like what's happening? Um, so I will say it's not a very well acted film because a lot of the people in the movie are just people that aren't actors. Um, so you have to kind of push past that a little bit, but it doesn't really matter because it's about, it's about representation of this demographic of people rather than what's the plot and how are, who are the, what are the performances and the cinematography? Although it has beautiful cinematography, beautiful cinematography. It's shot in black and white, um, very low budget. Um, you but said it's from the nineties? 94. Yeah. Okay. It's an excellent film. I would recommend it. Um, it is uh, streaming for free on Tubi and Pluto. Um, Tubi is great. Yeah, they have so much queer stuff on there. It's it's great. Um, so highly recommend. There aren't many, e- even as far as queer cinema goes, a lot of it is very like gay men centric. Um, but this is lesbian women and it's amazing. Um, anyway, yeah. So I watched another queer film as well, which is not really a queer film. It's just a film that the main character happens to be queer. So it's a movie called The Watermelon Woman. Came out in 1996, another indie film, um, but has actors in it. So it's a little bit more, it's a little bit of an easier pill to swallow if um, the acting in Go Fish is is a huge obstacle for you. Um, But it is about a black lesbian woman who is an aspiring filmmaker. (laughs) And um, it is about her experience of wanting to be a filmmaker. And she watches this movie and she sees it's a movie from the 1930s or 40s I I think it's the 30s and there is a black woman depicted in this film very briefly who's who is called the watermelon woman and the main character in this film um her name is Cheryl who is also the writer and director of this movie um she basically latches on to this watermelon woman in this movie and is like I want to find out who this woman is and I want to make a film about this woman. And so she ends up traveling around like all of these different places. And, um, oh, it's also taking place in Chicago. So I'm like, what? <laughs> I would love um, how the protagonist of, this, protagonist of this movie is basically Tatum. Yeah, basically me. 25 um, years ago. <laughs> but um, so she is traveling around and learning so much about this woman. And it goes into this history of, why is it so hard for her to find information about this black actress? Like finding information on black actors in general is difficult, but why this black female actress? Why can I not find anything about her? Like I want to find out who she is. I want to meet her family. I want to interview her family. Um, And we find out that this woman, the watermelon woman, who's the actress in the movie, she was actually a gay woman who was partnered with, the director of the film who is also a woman and she's this very famous film director that a lot of people don't know who she is. So anyway, it's a great, it's a very important film in the sense that the protagonist is, um, a black lesbian woman, but also it's very important in terms of representation because of the story that it tells. It goes into the history of, Hey, female gay Artists have existed in the film community for, you know, a century and longer if the if history had gone back far or if film had gone back farther than that. Um, and it's just a really important film, in my opinion, that 
that is representative of people that are pre that have previously like and currently honestly are still not represented well and dives into why that is in a way that's very relatable and personable because it's told through a fictional type of it's documentary style but it's told through a fictional like story kind of um so anyway that's the watermelon woman also streaming for free on Tubi and Pluto. So oh, I was about to ask. Yeah. Check it that out. Sounds really interesting. It's phenomenal. It's absolutely phenomenal. Um, it's an easy watch. I think it's like an hour and it's, I think it's like an hour and a half, maybe less. Um, so anyway, yep. Um, and then these next few, except for one of them, I'll go through pretty quickly. Um, I watched the birdcage, which is a film that we talked about, I think last week. Um, that stars, uh, Robin Williams and Nathan Lane. And, uh, I am very lukewarm on the film. Um, I hated the sun mostly. I think that's oh, the a sun lot of is the, the worst. Yeah. The sun <laughs> is terrible. Like monster. The sun is terrible. And I don't like that. Uh, Robin Williams character just kind of rolls over for him. And I'm like, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I think there's a few profound moments where we have conversations between Robin Williams and, and his son or his partner, um, about like the struggles of being a gay man. And I really like those moments, but at the end of the day, like certain things just didn't connect for me. I didn't understand why, um, Armand and Albert were together. It seemed like they didn't really get along well. And I was kind of like, okay, are they married? Are they friends do they like each other? like what is this what's going on here and so I didn't find their relationship to be believable and so I think because their relationship is the forefront of this movie as well as the concept and the plot involving the son I was like this doesn't fully work for me so there were certain moments that I liked I thought it was clever and funny um but overall I was like this this movie is is okay for me um because some parts I just couldn't get past um yeah I I really like their relationship I thought they did a good job of balancing like they are very different people and sometimes they get on each other's nerves but there is a lot of love and affection underneath all of it I thought they conveyed it well but there is a lot of squabbling because it is kind of a comedic farce so Mm -hmm. yeah your mileage may vary yeah um so that's birdcage and then well I watched a lot of movies from the 90s uh anyway (laughs) um so Two last things. So basically, what am I saying? I watched one, two, three, four, five movies this week, as well as an entire seven-hour miniseries and like <laughs> four hours, four hours of reservation dogs. So that's what happens when you're sick with COVID. Um, but anyway, so I also watched for the first time The Big Short. Um, actually, no, not for the first time. I had seen it when it first came out. You didn't see? Okay, I was gonna say I didn't see it in theaters, but I did see it when it first came out, and I was. I was a lot younger at the time. I don't remember exactly what my age was, but I didn't I didn't understand anything that they were talking about. And I was like, no, I just no, my brain hurts. So I didn't finish it. Um, but this time I was like, no, I'm actually going to try and give it a shot. And I watched it and I was unable to give it a rating on Letterboxd because I hated it so much. Not because it's a bad movie, but because I absolutely hated everything that they were capturing on screen. <laughs> I was like, I hate these people. I hate Wall Street. I hate I hate the stock market. I hate that it takes advantage of people. I hate that we have to participate in this system. Like, I'm watching this movie that depicts 
this detestable concept of something that actually happened while also knowing right now while I'm sitting here that I have to participate in this stock market in order to survive as a human being in my future life. And which is something that I hate. Um, Also, the stock market and things like that just confuse me, which I think this movie does a good job of saying like they are intentionally trying to confuse you because they want to take advantage of you. And anyway, so just having a depiction of that, I hated it so much that I couldn't separate the content from the quality of the film. And so I just landed at a point where I was like, I feel sick. And I don't know how I feel about this movie. (laughs) All I can say is I feel sick. So that was the big short. Uh, Finally got around to it. Won't ever watch it again. Um, Anyway. So yeah. Last thing. Um, This. Oh, I got to like. I got to prepare myself. (laughs) This is one of my favorite movies I have seen in a long time. It is another one of those movies that I feel like is a Tatum movie in the sense that like it's a small indie that a lot of people haven't seen. It's shot beautifully. It's very simple. There isn't really a a plot other than like we're watching people emotionally develop. Um, But but that's not to undermine the movie. Like it is a fantastic, stunning, profound film and it is called The Quiet Girl. And it is a, a, an Irish film. I don't understand the UK accuracy of what's what up like there. It's Southern Irish, Republic of Ireland or Northern Irish, you mean? I, I just don't. I don't know. It's. I think it's Irish. but I think And I think they're speaking Gaelic, but I don't actually know because I don't know. Anyway, but... It is a film. Geneva, I think you in particular might mm. really like this movie. Um, yeah, I've but, heard some really good things about it. It's, I've kind of had my eye, eye on it for a while. Yeah. So as far as I know, it was not nominated for any Oscars, which I think is a travesty. Um, that's the second international feature film that should have yeah, been Yeah, I remember a lot of for... conversation. Oh, it was nominated for Best International Feature. <gasps> good. It was Ireland's um, good. entry in okay. 2023. Gotcha. Okay, good. Well well deserved. Um, but anyway, so it, it is a story about a young girl, and she is from a dysfunctional family. She has several siblings. I don't, I don't think we ever get an idea fully of how many there are, but we get the sense that it's parents that maybe don't use or don't have access to birth control. And so they keep having kids, but they can't care for them and they're neglected. And, and because of that, the main character, um, I don't know how to pronounce her name because it's a Gaelic pronunciation, but, um, but she, as a result of her upbringing becomes this very, very quiet child who doesn't feel like she has space to speak. She doesn't have space to interact um, there's also a oh sense boy, that, that sound like it would connect with me. <laughs> yeah. But there's also a sense that like, there's maybe unseen abuse going on with the dad towards the children, towards the mother, but the mother is just so exhausted from these kids and they don't have any money and da da. So basically, uh, the main character, she gets sent to her, I believe it's her mom's sister. So she gets sent to stay with her mom's sister and her husband for the summer. And they are incredibly 
loving, caring, fostering people who really, really help her flourish and feel comfortable and feel safe. And you see this slow evolution that this child has of going from this quiet, fearful, timid child to then becoming more of a carefree kid who can see the joy in life and feel safe and is excited to wake up every morning. And um, and there's things that happen later on. We learn things about characters and, and all of that. Um, but it is an incredibly beautiful film that I would highly recommend anyone watch. Um, it's very short. It's only an hour and a half. Um, the performances are phenomenal. The score is great. The cinematography is absolutely beautiful. Um, it It's one of my favorite movies I've seen in a long while. It's very, very, very good. Um, and it is currently streaming on Hulu. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, that is the briefest summary I'm able to give of the <laughs> copious amounts of things that I watched this week. Um so thanks for wow. sticking around. Uh, I think I'm going to continue on this trend of just watching things that are not white, straight American things because it's driving me nuts. And there's so many other things out there that need to be seen. And uh, they're important. And yeah, do people it. should see them. Um, but anyway, so yeah, that is... Uh, Midnight Mass, Reservation Dogs, The Birdcage, Go Fish, The Watermelon Woman, The Quiet Girl, and The Big Short. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. What a spread. All over the place, man. Diversity is a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Cool. So all that being said, let's jump into a very white all men. uh, (laughs) Made in America, though not set in Made in America. And spoken in English, even though the main character should be German, speaking in German. You know, whatever. Um, <laughs> which is, also one of the de- most depressing movies ever made, but you know. You know, yeah. So let's let's get into it. Let's do it. So today on the show, we are discussing the 1930 war epic, All Quiet on the Western Front. Being the third ever Best Picture winner at the Academy Awards, All Quiet is considered to be one of the best war films ever made albeit an anti-war film. Adapted from German author Eric Maria Remarque's 1928 novel of the same name, All Quiet tells the story of several young German boys, some even teenagers, who enthusiastically enlist in the German army during World War I. After only a short period of training, the boys are sent to the front lines. Immediately upon their arrival, all of their optimistic and honorable expectations of war are blown to bits. Throughout the rest of the film, one by one, the boys fall dead in combat. All the while, they question the reason, not only for them being there, but also the reason for war at all. Given the time period in which the film was released, it was covered in controversy and it ended up being banned in several countries. Surprise, surprise. Um, Hitler and the Nazis opposed its depictions of the Germans as well as its anti-war agenda. And when the first was film released in Berlin in 1930, many Nazis actually under the command of Goebbels entered theaters and released things like sneezing powder and mice upon audiences to try and deter them from seeing this film. And so by December of 1930, the film was officially outlawed in Germany. 
However, in 1931, a heavily cut version of it was actually released again before then being banned a second time when the Nazis came to power in 1933. Uh, The film was also banned in Australia from 1930 to 1941, and then in Italy and Austria from 1931 until the 1980s. And it was also banned in France until 1963. (laughs) So uh, this film is dealing with content that a lot of countries around the world did not want to interact with for um, quite some time. And just to kind of throw a few other things out there, I read a bunch of different articles and I would recommend to the listener, there's actually several articles out there that are reviews of this film that came out in 1930, which I think is fascinating to read because some of them were talking about how like, this is the depiction of the worst war in human history. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh honey, y'all, y'all don't even know what's coming. <laughs> and just like the perspective that people took specifically in 1930 from, I only read reviews that were written by Americans, but like um, the American perspective of this movie and its messaging in the time of 1930, post-World War One, but pre-World War Two, it's just incredibly fascinating um and this movie it was I was unable to I was unable to find how much uh money it actually made but I do know it was made on a budget of 1.5 million dollars adjusted for inflation I think um but it was a success in terms of lots of people went to the theaters to see it um and I know Wikipedia said this is how much money it made but the source didn't fully seem reliable so I wasn't really sure um but yeah, I tr- the one thing that I was really fascinated in that I was unable to find in the research that I did was I really wanted to learn about um, how this was shot because it's very impressive the fact that this movie used tracking shots the way that it did in 1930. A lot of films at this time, cameras were still. They were on tripods. They didn't move. Um, but this movie was not just moving, but like moving through trenches. And we have shots from the air and things like this. Um, so I was unfortunately unable to find too much information on that, which I was bummed about because the nerdy me is like, I want to learn about the production design and the camera use and all of these things. And how much background did they, you know, um, maybe it's out there. I just was unable to find it. Um, but the last thing I will say from the research that I did, which I found this to be really fascinating is that, so this film, there's actually two cuts of it. There is this version, which is the one where, you know, we hear everything, which I'm assuming is the one that you watched, Geneva. But there was also a longer cut that is actually a silent film where there is, we don't hear any of the talking. We just have kind of title cards of people saying certain things here and there. And um, it was just really interesting reading about people's different interpretations of the film and then their different like emotional takeaways from the film based off of whether it was a movie that had speaking or a movie that didn't have speaking at all. Um, apparently one of the motivations for releasing a silent version was so that it wasn't so obvious that the people speaking were speaking English, even though you could tell based off of how the mouths are moving, but they were trying to show like, Hey, this could be German people speaking German. You don't actually know. I'm like, well, we know, but that's fine. Um, but yeah, it made me interested to maybe look up the silent version of this film um, and see the difference because this movie, even though it does have talking, 
there famously isn't a score um, until like the very, very end. Um, so I wonder what that would be like to watch a silent version that has music, but no talking. So Yeah, that's really fascinating. I wonder, did you see anything about where or how widely the silent version was screened? Was it mainly screened overseas, maybe international audiences? I think it was, I, I think it was kind of released both of them everywhere. So people could kind of choose which one they wanted to go see, I think. And I think I read something of like, the silent one was recently rediscovered or something like that. I don't fully remember. Um, I did most of my research yesterday, but this particular point of research mm-hmm. I did this morning while I was lying in my bed before we started recording. So, um, yeah. yeah. But I was also wondering, it looked to me like at certain points during the battle scenes, they had cut in actual clips from like footage of World War One battles, but I'm not sure... If I if it's just very convincing recreated footage or if that's actually what they did. And I I briefly checked the Wikipedia page and didn't see anything about it either way and didn't do any further research. But I was wondering if that if anything about that had come up for you. Yeah, I don't think that any of it was real footage, except for maybe the beginning when we have like that montage of like the overlaying of things and you see stuff in the background. Mm. Um, But from the research that I did, I'm pretty sure, like, as far as the battle scenes go and everything, all of that was real. Um, it was very convincing. It was really, really well oh, done yeah. battle scenes. I read some super interesting articles kind of comparing and contrasting this version to the version that came out in 2022. And it was really interesting because um, this movie, this version of it from 1930 uh, what's his name? Mill Millstrom, the uh, the director M- Milestone. Um, he Milestone. His intention with the with this movie was like I want it to be accurate, and so he did interviews with people who were actual veterans. And like this, the the shot we have of the the hands hanging from the wires. He actually Haunting. he heard that from a veteran that he had seen that, and so he was like, I want to depict this in my film. Um, so he was very focused on an like an accurate depiction of the horrors of the war, whereas the recent one that came out last year was more so focused on the German perspective of what the German experience was of it, which is, you know, theoretically maybe more accurate to Germans in terms of how they felt about it, like being members of this war and veterans of this war but maybe less accurate in terms of like the facts of what happened. And so I found it to be interesting to read that because for me, I have not seen the 2022 version. I was very strongly like people need to watch the 1930 version. But now having read these articles, I do want to go and watch the 2022 one because I do see a relevance to like this 1930 version is made by Americans from Hollywood talking about a German experience during a time when I don't really know how much Americans were actually in touch with the German experience versus something that was made by a German for Germans, for Germans, wanting to represent the German experience. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I find that 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 balance to be interesting. I don't necessarily yeah. think one is more right than the other. Um, but yeah. yeah. There is a really great video, and maybe you've actually watched this during your research, but for anyone who's not aware, um, 
the YouTube channel Be Kind Rewind, which is one of my favorites. Um, they do really good uh, sort of documentary shorts on um, Hollywood history, and they did a video on uh, around the time of the release of the the remake, comparing the two and talking about the context in which they were made and how they were received and the difference in intention between the makers of the 1930 version versus the makers of the 1922 or 2022 version. Um, and so they they do talk a lot about that, how this was very, the 22 version was a very specifically trying to represent the German perspective and particularly the German perspective from 2022, when we now have the perspective of all of this is going to happen again, even worse. Mm-hmm. And you know, in the the Second World War. And so a lot of the things that they add in the 22 version, which were not in the 1930 version and were not in the original novel, are additional perspectives on the the political and kind of the higher military brass um, debate going on during the war, the attempts to sign an armistice and then the attempts within German high command to resist signing the armistice and how all of those political considerations and the sort of misguided sense of honor and, you know, country fighting for your fatherland and we can't be beaten and all of these things, how those perspectives were kind of temporarily beaten by the signing of the armistice, but then would continue to fester and go on to lead to an, a greater war. And so that was really interesting because they do change a lot in the 22 version. Um you know, it's it's not a strictly faithful adaptation of the novel, but it does add. It is interesting from an adaptation standpoint how the the reasons why those changes were made, so that we they could bring in some perspectives from the modern day. Totally, yeah. Um, so I'm definitely I, I've been convinced. I will watch the the twenty two yeah. the twenty twenty two version. I would still say that. The 1930 version is just better as a movie, but so the 22 Geneva, version is interesting. <laughs> Geneva, use that as a as a transition. Tell me your thoughts yeah. on this movie. Tell me your relationship to it. Sure. Go. Yeah. So this is my <laughs> first time watching this movie. It's been on my list for quite a while. I've been begging since... Geneva to watch it for years. <laughs> yes, Tatum has been telling me for years how good it is, and um, so I'm really glad I finally had the chance to watch it. Um, and I had just. Uh, my relationship to other versions of All Quiet on the Western Front. So like many people, I read the book back in high school. Um, incredible book. If you've never had to read it as part of school or for on your own, highly recommend reading it because it's just a foundational text in that sort of genre of understanding, you know, the horrors of war and the military mindset and the dehumanization and the pointlessness of of something like World War One. And I think everyone should read it. It's phenomenal. Um, and then I had seen the 2022 version when that came out, um, was a bit mixed on it, felt like it had some really interesting things to say. It had some really beautiful moments. There are definitely some visuals and scenes and concepts that really stuck in my mind for a long time afterwards. So I'm very glad that it exists. Um, But then I thought some of the changes were kind of weakened rather than strengthened the movie overall. And in particular, the way they set up the ending um, is kind of, they're attempting to bring in these larger themes about how the, um, you know, the dangerousness of that, um, military mindset of, you know, we need to 
fight to the end with quote unquote honor or else, you know, it's all for nothing and how that led to many people being killed horribly right up until the moment of the armistice. But the way they do it, I just think is not, it's a little bit too over the top for me. It's a little bit too, uh, Hollywood eye seems like the wrong term, especially because this isn't a Hollywood movie. It's a German movie, but yeah, it, it didn't fully work for me. Whereas I think this version, the 1930 version, does the ending so well because it captures what it is in the book, which is it's just a random day. It's just, you know, one moment he's alive and the next moment he's not, and there's no real meaning to it. And it's just bad luck, you know? And it's that, that is such a huge theme within the book and then within the 1930 version is the the pointlessness and the the idea that it's just going into something that you think is going to be grand and honorable and exciting and realizing it's just suffering for no greater purpose until one day it ends. And I think this movie does this really well. It is so well made and well acted. Um, like I said, the battle scenes, I was just, I, I don't know how they film some of these things. They are incredible. Um, the explosions and the um, the sense of scale. There are so many extras, and the the camera movements are so fluid. The editing is excellent. Um, yeah, man, <laughs> I'm excited to talk about this because I I really really thought this movie was excellent. Yeah, this th- this is one of those movies. I think I remember you telling me this, but <laughs> I feel like this is or me telling you this, but I think this is going to be a consistent theme on this show. I'm, I'm just going to mention like a few years ago, I had this list of movies that said, if you want to be a movie person, you have to watch this movie. This movie was on that list. So <laughs> um, when I saw this movie, I think what I remember telling you is that, you know, in addition to the themes of the story and things like that, because you knew about them because you'd read the book, I was like, I do not understand how this movie was made in 1930. I was so impressed with the way that they depicted bombings and the way that they moved the camera and and showed these trenches and people crawling through, you know, it's just it's remarkable. And um in addition to, you know, the anti-war themes, my one of my main takeaways after watching it the first time was how the hell did they make like how did they make this which is why I w- was trying to do research on this for this episode <laughs> I was like now I'm gonna get my answer and I couldn't find much about it um other than that they apparently shot it with two cameras one without sound and one with sound for the silent version and the spoken version but um maybe I can find it in some archives somewhere because I didn't do enough research I don't know but um if any of these people are still alive, send us an email <laughs> and tell us how you made this movie. Yeah. Um, Literally 90-something years, years old. <laughs> yeah. um, but, hey, you never know. Some of them might be alive. I, I don't know. Um, but, oh, probably not because they were not zero when this movie was made. They were adults. So, <laughs> Anyway, um, but, yeah, I, I think this is just an incredible feat technologically um, I would love to learn the history of of how this maybe impacted the future of cinema in terms of techniques that were used or lighting that was used. 
um, because certain things were shot at night, but we could see it so clearly and Mm -hmm. and how they captured sound and recorded people's voices. The sound is the part that really blows my mind because like the the sort of epic battle scenes and sense of scale, you know, I, I, I watched... Uh, wings a few months ago and that is a similar you know world war one movie there's a real sense of verisimilitude and it's grand and sweeping and epic and you there's so many shots you're like how do they do that i don't understand but that movie is not there's no sound it's a silent mm-hmm. film it's one of the last uh, years in which silent um you know grand epic films were made silent this movie is from 1930 sounds only been around for about three years yep. and Obviously, three years is, you know, time for innovation. But like you say, a lot of movies at this time still have the camera just stuck in one place. And it's very difficult to kind of be balancing and mixing and, you know, getting dialogue and and moving around the room while people are talking. And yet somehow they were able to achieve all of that. Yeah, I was just like, wow, (laughs) I had no idea that at 1930 they were... Had, were already able to achieve so many of these things. And in addition to the sound mixing and, and the recordings and the overlaying and all of those things, I also am struck by, with sound being such a relatively new thing at the time, I'm struck by the way that they chose to use sound in the editing process in terms of, you know, we have, it feels like the sound in and of itself is a character Mm. It's not like, oh, the sound exists because sound exists in the world. You know, it's like, no, we are trying to communicate by, you know, the the frequency in which bombs are dropping. How long we're hearing the bombs for? Like, are we hearing bombs constantly for five minutes or are we hearing them once every three minutes? Or it it, it feels like the sound is a character and it really feels like in this movie, especially for the time, the fact that they took sound and were able to interpret it in this very intentional creative sort of way of we are going to use it to create some sort of like a sense of dread or a sense of of um sadness or a sense of fear like I don't know it just feels like it's used in a way where they've known how to use sound for forever (laughs) and they're like oh here's a new interpretation of using sound but I don't know. It's just very impressive to me the way that they do that. You're so right. In that first major battle scene, which is the one that really started to blow my mind, and it's a long scene. It's It's between five and ten minutes long. It's Mm -hmm. it's quite long. Basically, the entire time, you are just hearing, like over and over again. You're just hearing the whistling of bombs and the explosions over and over and over again for five plus minutes straight. And then at the same time, you're also hearing overlays of maybe a person shouting or the rattle of bullets or something like that. Um, People crunching in the mud and things like that. But it's just constant bombs, the whistling and the explosion from bombs going off. And then while you're what you're watching is all of these scenes of just faceless men in uniforms that look very similar running in one direction and then running in another and then someone tripping and falling or someone getting hit by a bullet and then more men running and it's just it's so numbing in in like in an intentional expertly crafted way you know it really conveys the chaos and the horror and the sense of you know every possible feeling of this is exciting or 
this is honorable, we're on an adventure, all of that is almost instantly lost. And it's just running and screaming and bombs and horror and chaos and constant um, danger of being blown up until the moment that you are. It's so well done. Yeah, it's it's incredible. Um, yeah, I'm I'm very I'm I mean I knew that you would like this movie, but I'm very glad that that you <laughs> liked it. Um, so I'm gonna kind of um, this movie is quite long, and this movie has a lot going on. So I'm just gonna kind of say bunches of kind of scenes in a row. And then we can break down whatever aspects of whatever particular scenes that we want to. And then as we go along with that, I'm going to, I think, throw in specific characters and we can talk about them specifically. Um, So, yeah, I'm just going to start with like the opening few scenes that kind of happen in progression. So um, I didn't write all of it down. I'm assuming it's a quote from the book, but the very beginning of the film, we have you know, this text on the screen that's explaining kind of the context of everything and perspectives on war and things like that. And then after that, we are introduced to um, kind of the attitude that people have towards the war, uh, given the fact that they have not been on the battlefield. And seemingly at this point, they don't yet know anyone that's been on the battlefield that's kind of either died or tried to explain to them what what is actually happening over there so we see lots of people just kind of being like hey the war and i'm gonna i'm a postman today and i'll be a lieutenant tomorrow you know like there's a parade of soldiers about to head off marching down the street and people are out cheering them on and everyone's of that you know still of that idea of like oh you know we're the germans we're we're the best and the war's not gonna last long we're gonna lick those french frenchies in a few weeks and we'll be home and you know, everything is still very optimistic and very, um, you know, th- there's no real sense in them that, oh, this this may not actually work out for us. Yeah. So so we have that kind of establishing emotion, which is expanded upon by we go to this um, kind of recruitment uh, classroom almost where well, okay a so the crazy school... thing is is like this isn't even this is like a regular school this is like a high school and right. yet the teacher has decided to take time out of what they're supposed to be doing which is learning and just off the cuff give these recruitment speeches like what um you know what incentive does he have to get them into the war he's a teacher and obviously he's too old to fight but he's just so caught up in the propaganda he can't help but inculcated into his students yeah so we have this we have this classroom and we're introduced to all these boys and this teacher who is um very vocally uh trying to recruit them into the war even though he's not really involved in like you said we don't really understand uh why he's doing this other than i don't know at this point there's a lot of people which is, you know, why this is an anti-war film. I think it specifically is talking about World War One, but it can be applied to any war. You know, like wh- people get so enthusiastic about these sorts of things for what? For nationalism? For machismo? For like wh- all of the above? You know, um, but so yeah, and we have these 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 boys. You kind of see these different reactions initially. Some of them they look scared. Some of them look excited. Some of them look, you know, contemplative, and then. But then by the end of this guy's speech, everyone's like, hey, we're going to war, except for this one guy 
who's sitting there and he's like, I don't really know if I want to go. And then he gets kind of bullied into going because these other classmates are like, well, what do you mean? Like, do you not care? Do you not love your country? Are you not like, what are you afraid of? Blah, blah, blah. And they all have this reaction where they stand up and someone shouts, no more classes. And so it's very much so this just depiction of these bright eyed boys who basically have been lied to about what war actually is. And so they enthusiastically enlist and um, they all end up going to training together. You know, these these classmates um, and when they get to training, they end up seeing uh, Himmelstoss, who was the postman, who now is an officer in the army. And all of them initially are kind of poking fun at him. And they're like, hey, you used to deliver my mail. Like, what's going on? And Himmelstoss is really trying to assert himself and being like, no, we are in a different place now. You need to step down and give me respect and listen to me. And the boys still don't really kind of fully believe that and fall in line, even though over time they do start going through this training of, you know, we're we're climbing through mud and, and we're doing all of these things and we're training all day, every day, and we don't really have time for a break. And um, they kind of end up taking it out on him of just like, he doesn't have to do any of the hard work, but he's making us do all the hard work. And so how can we get back at him? Um, and we have this sequence where Himmelstoss is walking home drunk from a night of gallivanting out on the military town. I don't know. Um, and the boys kind of ambush him and uh, throw him in a puddle, which is just like, okay, interesting. Um, but anyway, so that's that's kind of, I guess, the opening everything before we actually get out onto the onto the battlefield. So is there anything in particular there that you want to dive into? I guess just, and I mean, this is so much a recurring motif throughout the film, especially toward the end when Paul goes home on leave and then we, you know, he runs into that teacher again. Um, but this idea of the generational divide and how the part that plays in basically tricking these boys into signing their lives away for a cause that's meaningless is, you know, all the, this older generation of of men who are all so gung-ho about the the importance of, you know, defending the fatherland and natural na- uh, nationalistic propaganda maybe they served we don't really know but if they did ever serve it would have been 20 to 30 years ago when war looked very very different they have no idea what it is that they are signing these boys up for any relationship that they have to war is very much you know like the cavalry cavalry lines up on the field and then we kind of charge at each other and then it's over and we go home and i mean you know there was more to it than that it was <laughs> it was definitely worse than that but it's not anything with the deve- way that technology has developed at this point in time it is so different from anything that they would have experienced or anything that w- they would have read about in their history books which you know were idolizing the military leaders of the past and so they are espousing all of these ideas and pushing people into something that they have no idea what it's going to lead to. And you also get the sense later on in the film, we can talk about it more, but like they also don't really care and they're not willing to listen. You know, the people come home and they tell them what it's like and they're just like, 
oh, no, 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 you don't understand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, your experience doesn't matter. I'm seeing the bigger picture from here on my couch. Um, yeah, I, I just found that whole motif throughout the film to be very, um, you know, it, it's very incisive and very insightful about the way that um, the differences in generations and experiences and, you know, thinking that you understand something when you have not actually lived the experience um, and what that can lead to. Yeah, I I think about the structure of the film. So I, I don't know, which maybe I could do research on this, but I don't know how widely read this book was at the time that it came out. But I'm thinking, you know, if I was someone who was sitting in a theater in 1930 watching this movie and had never read the book and I didn't know where this film was going, this opening part would really feel like like a, a war propaganda film. It really would. And... I wonder what my reaction would be sitting there having known at that point what World War One was and watching this beginning. I, I, I don't know. I, I just I, I try to think about like what what that audience feeling must have been like if they had not read the book. They weren't very familiar with the material and having the knowledge they had of World War One. You know, how would they have reacted to this opening, you know, 20 minutes or whatever it is? Um, cause it does seem very enthusiastic and, oh my gosh, we're going to war and we're going to fight whoever and we're at training and we're kind of joking around and poking fun at our postman guy who's now in charge. Like, what's up with that guy? You know, it, it really feels like a, like a joke almost. Um, but then, you know, we get to, we follow these boys to basically them being deployed and, and to oh, like the front lines pretty much. And they step off the train and immediately people are killed because bombs drop. And it's just like, oh, this is and and pretty much right off the bat when that happens, we see one of the boys look at a dead body and they look very in shock, you know, and and they kind of keep going a little bit. They're not fully aware of what's happening yet because they're like it's still the first time and maybe they're in shock a little bit and maybe they're able to like forget, forget, or maybe think like, Oh, it's a one-time thing or whatever. But, um, the fact that that is such an immediate thing that happens the second they step off the train, I think is very, um, very powerful. Um, and then we're introduced to this group of men that they, that they get to meet and they also kind of waking up to the realities of war they get to this group and they're like hey we're hungry and they're like great me too you know <laughs> like i don't know like Join what is yeah like what does that have to do with anything of like cool um but then I, then they learn about this um character who we're going to get to know very well throughout the rest of the film whose name is cat and he's kind of the one who if you need food Cat's the one who's going to get it for you, you know? And so we have this scene of him kind of stealing um, a pig from this truck that's delivering and dropping off a bunch of, you know, pig meat for to be transported somewhere. Kind of um, a funny, funny moment, honestly, the way he yeah. kind of stands his way to getting a pig. He like peeks his head out. He's like licking his lips like he's hungry. <laughs> um, but then continuing this concept of, of, the boys kind of being woken up to the reality of this world that they're now in. Um, Kat comes back with 
the pig and the boys are like we can pay we can pay you for the food and he's like okay cool they're like we have money he's like money's just pieces of paper you know like do you have cigarettes do you have brandy do you have do you have boots what, what do you have like your money means nothing to me and these boys are like oh <laughs> okay um which they, they give him so, so many things. So many things. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. They're just emptying their pockets. I'm like, are you going to be able to pay for future meals? Save your resources, <laughs> fellas. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then we have this kind of inner debate between some of the men who are like, they just got here. We, there's barely enough food for us. Why are you offering it to them, too? And then Kat is like, I'm done giving you guys food for free. Y'all don't pay me anymore. Like, <laughs> these guys are actually willing to give me it a shit ton of stuff so like shut up and take what you get um so yeah they all kind of sit down and get to eat something um and yeah I don't know is there anything anything right there that you want to kind of discuss I think this does such a good job of establishing the importance of the and the strength of the bonds that develop between the the men as they are fighting and as as they find themselves in situations. And we kind of, um, you know, we get a sense that there's a constant cycle of men get killed off and then newbies are brought in and they're really green and they don't know what's going on. And some of them will get picked off, but the ones that don't kind of go from being the outsiders to being the insiders. And that the strength of that bond that you get as you go through all of these horrible traumatic things is um, it's really, really important to them and to their ability to stay sane and to keep going. And I think it's so important that at the end, um, which we'll talk about, the thing that finally makes Paul give up on going forward is when Kat dies, Kat being the person he becomes closest to in this unit, but also kind of his last link to all of the people that he met when he first joined up. It's like they all get picked off one one by one. And then when Kat dies, there's basically no one left. And that's the thing. You know, he these men are very quickly disillusioned of the idea that they are fighting for their fatherland, that they are fighting for some noble cause. But what they're fighting for is each other and trying to keep each other alive and the bonds they have with each other being the thing that gives their life any continued meaning. And then when those bonds are broken and when the the friends they have are killed off, then that's when there's nothing else left for them. Totally. It's, it's this complex idea of even though, even though that, even though being a part of the army is a very tragic, scary arguably unnecessary thing for people to be a part of there's almost a beauty to it as well when you see the relationships and the bonds that are built I mean trauma bonding is a thing uh I'm not saying that experiencing trauma is is a preferable life experience but the fact that you do form relationships from those moments that are so deep and profound in a way that other people can't understand I think this film does a really good job of, um, I don't know, like showing this this beauty of bonding that is able to be found amongst all of this chaos and horror. Um, and it's it's beautiful enough that people are willing to go back to the army for it, you know? And that says a lot about society and, and home, 
you know, the fact that they, they think that, or the fact that the world that they now live in has no place for them. And yeah, it, being in it, the it, army is that only place now. That's tragic. But also it, it represents how beautiful these relationships are and can be, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They understand who they are and what their place is when they're in the army around people who understand what they're going through. Mm-hmm. And when they go back to the civilian world, there's nothing for them to hold on to. Also, one... So after 1917 came out, because I really, really liked that movie, I kind of went down a World War One <laughs> history rabbit hole. And it's been a few years now. But one thing I remember reading is that in World War One, and I think this is one of the reasons that it was so jarringly tragic and such a huge, um, <clears throat> you know, so hugely damaging to the general psyche is a lot of the the general practice at least in England i'm i i assuming that was probably the case in France in Germany as well it certainly seems to be in this movie the practice was that you would go and sign up with all your friends from your hometown and then all of you would be assigned to the same unit and so the idea is like that makes war more fun to you know and that's an inducement is like you can go to war with all your best friends and stick together but what ends up happening is then you're seeing your brothers and your cousins and your best friends from school all being horribly obliterated and picked off one by one. And then it becomes 10 times more psychically shattering than if it was just seeing people be horribly killed who, you know, you had just met in basic training, you know, a few weeks ago. All of a sudden, the people that you're, the trauma that you're going through, you're also seeing all of the people that you love go through it. And I think that's something that um, is also depicted in they don't, you know, they don't explicitly state it, but <laughs> it's very much depicted here that, you know, as these people are being picked off, it's not just that people are dying. It's that people that we have grown up with, people that we signed up with, people that we pressured into signing up, which we'll talk about in the next section, I think, are dying. And so that's something that was changed in World War II. It became the practice, no, 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 we need to split up families. We need to split up people from the same hometown and assign them to different units because otherwise it's just too harmful, you know? Yeah. So... Kind of moving forward from there uh, as a transition. So I don't know if it's immediately the next morning. It seems like maybe it is. But but the next morning, these boys are sent to the front lines. And so we have this moment where they're driven somewhere in a truck and then they get off the truck and the truck driver makes this cracks this joke of like, if there's any of you left tomorrow, if there's any of you left, I'll pick you up in the morning. And it's like this flippant joke that you know, this one guy, I can't remember if it's Kat or someone else, but kind of responds with another, you know, jab. He's like, don't be late. I I don't want to miss my breakfast. Yeah. And it's like, that is terrible, but uh, okay. (laughs) The gallows humor in this movie is so essential because it's like, Mm -hmm. you're in this traumatic experience. The only thing, you can either respond to it with humor as far as you can, or you just completely break down, you know? And there's mm-hmm. so much joking and laughter among them because it's like, this is the only way that we can find to deal with what we're going through. Yeah. So we see this truck driving away. And as the truck pulls away, we have these shots of the of the boys looking back and seeing mm-hmm. the truck driving away, which is the same shot that we'll see again at the end of the movie of all of these boys turning their heads and looking behind them as they go off to war. And so this is kind of the moment when the movie is letting you know that we are transitioning. This life that they are coming from is about to leave and they're stepping into a new reality. And so 
So they start walking and then they end up um they end up heading to the trenches towards the front lines and and Cat is kind of teaching them how to navigate the, you know, the battlefield because we start learning that their training actually wasn't really uh very extensive in terms of how they were prepared for what they're stepping into and so Cat's kind of showing them the ropes. Um, and this is when we're first introduced to the incredible production design of these trenches and how, um, expansive they are. And their first assignment is to go out and set up some wiring out on the trenches. And so they're doing that at night. And this is when we get our first death, um, at least from one of the characters that whose names we know. And so the character's name is Bane. He's one of their classroom friends and, He's the first one to die, and Cat basically is informing him. You know, whoever discovers him or or whatever, they're like, he he's dead, you know, because he's trying to get them, you know, fall crouch down in the trenches like we are being bombed right now. And one of the classmates runs out and grabs Bane and brings him back. And Cat is like, "Why did you bother bringing him here if he's dead? Like, why would you risk your life?" to do that he's just a corpse at this point like he's no longer your friend he is a corpse and do not do that again and this is kind of a very huge wake-up call for for these young men of just like oh even when our friends fall in the battlefield now they they're supposed to not mean anything to us they're just corpses and we have to get used to that because we are going to lose so many that we can't we can't be emotionally attached every time this happens because if that happens, then we're just going to fall over and not function. Um, so Kat is definitely introducing them to the realities. He's not introducing them to the realities, but he's introducing them to how you need to respond to these realities in order to continue on. Um, so, so yeah, anyway, we have this whole event happen. And then after this, they go back to this, you know, underground trench shelter thingy yeah, thing. Yeah, the dugout or whatever yeah. it is. And so this whole moment, we we kind of really get a depiction of how nasty these, these kind of trenches and little underground safe spaces are. Um, we have depictions of rats running around everywhere. Um, we have depictions of them going long times without food and someone showing up with food is like oh my gosh we have food today like this is this is a gift you know so we're introduced to that concept um we're really seeing these young men for the first time like embracing what's going on we have people freaking out because the bombs won't stop dropping we have a man kind of dreaming out loud about his friend Bane who's dead and then he wakes up and he's like it's not Bane it's me I'm the one who's you know we're really starting to see the toll that this is already taking on that, which kind of foreshadows how much, how much more of a toll it will take on them going forward. And so I remember for me watching this movie the first time, this was the scene that impacted me the most, actually. This, this first moment of them being in this small room, not to mention how it's a production design beauty and like how they have the like the rocks falling from the ceiling every time a bomb drops but it's just so heart-wrenching to see these young men 
I don't know, just having to cope with what they've been through already and knowing that it's only going to continue. And this boy like screaming again, talking about the, the sound design, like we were saying before, they didn't have to have the bombs going in the background the way that they did while watch, like while making this movie, but they did. And this young man eventually can't take it. And he's like, stop, like the bombs need to stop. I can't, I can't keep hearing this. Like I'm losing my mind. And then one of them ends up punching him in the face to get him to shut up. And then he comes to and they're like, okay, you feel better now? Like, are you going to stop screaming now? Like, I can't, you know. Um, So, yeah. Oh, yeah. And one of them, I think, actually tries to run out into the, like, trench, too, because he's getting, like, cabin fever. He can't take it. And then we have a bomb. And I think, like, a bunch of dirt also falls in the opening. And they're freaking out that they're going to be trapped. And it's just so much happens in such a short period of time. And it's horrifying. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but anyway, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just, oh man, Tribute, he's only in a few scenes because he, he he's the first one of the, the friend group to die off. But tribute to the, the guy who plays Bean, um, whatever his, his name is, I should have looked it up. Bane. Bane. Oh, oh, the actor? The, the actor or the character when you say you don't know what his the, name the, is? the the actor i don't know what his name oh, is oh it's walter rogers okay thank you um he's the, the one whose face is on the cover of uh, the movie poster of this film for oh, context i was wondering the okay. first one who dies is the one whose face is on the yeah i thought it yeah. looked like him but it also looked a little bit like um lou airs so i i couldn't quite tell but that makes a lot of sense anyway he the scream that he gives when so they're they're out on their um their first assignment they're rewiring some barbed wire bombs start going off he falls down and when he gets up his face is covered in blood and he starts screaming my eyes i can't see i can't mm-hmm. see my eyes and he just starts kind of running around wildly and just the screams that he gives are so horrible and yeah tribute to him cuz it's really really shocking and terrifying and so yeah he goes running around kind of wildly because he just can't see and then i think he gets mowed down by a bullet um but yeah it's it's really horrifying and then again like you said the sound design while they're in the dugout and you know we have so much more research nowadays about the effects of um prolonged periods of intense stress and thinking about they say it's been about a week that they've Mm -hmm. been under constant bombardment being in that dugout every single Mm. bomb that falls could be the one that falls on top of you every single time you know the ground starts to shake and dirt starts falling from the ceiling that could be it It, like it's no wonder that they're on the breaking point you know a solid week of that it's insane to consider um yeah, the, they, they do such a good job of depicting how claustropho- claustrophobic and terrifying that would be. Yeah, and we see, you know, we see people coping in lots of different ways. And we have this moment where they're playing cards and they're trying to, like, distract themselves. And But eventually it gets to a point when it's just, I feel like the scene that we're watching is when they all are just breaking. You know, it's like th- this is this is their limit. And we have one guy stand up and he's like, if we're here to fight, then let's fight. Let's do something. Like, we can't just keep sitting here. And it's like, but where where are you going to go? Like, it's constant bombing out there. Mm-hmm. Like, y- we can't step outside. And so eventually, I, I found this to be really um, just difficult to watch as well. Once the bombs start falling, which who know how who knows how long that's been. You know, we say it's about a week, but 
have they how much have they been sleeping it's very clear they've barely eaten anything and the bombs stop falling and immediately they're like okay this is our time to charge so it's like the bombs stop and right away it's like okay now it's our turn we got to go out and fight now and this leads into this very long sequence of you know thousands of men running and charging and diving through these trenches and dodging these obstacles and bombs are still falling but they're pressing forward and pushing forward and you know this is when we get that shot of like the hands that are hanging from this wire and we have these just all of these different depictions of how people are dying so it's like are you losing a leg are you getting hit in the stomach are you tripping and falling are people you know trampling you to death while they're running like we have all of these different depictions of people being killed one after the other after the other after the other after the other and for me I get to a point where I'm like are you guys even making progress like like where are you going like, well this wh- is the thing is like it, it's a bit difficult to understand what exactly is going on but what I seem to what I read it as is they're in the trench the French I think it's who who they're fighting in this battle come charging over they manage to fight them off and then they charge over and take the front the the french trench but then once they get there the commander is like we can't actually hold this we need to go back so two armies have gone over the top been absolutely decimated and then they don't even actually no no ground changes hands at the end of all of that it was there was no point to it whatsoever this is a very uh inappropriate joke but i'm gonna make it anyway they needed a George Mackay to show up and tell them not to, not to go up <laughs> not over to the run. trench. But this <laughs> does go give up over the trench. <laughs> <laughs> this does give more resonance, though, to the um, the Benedict Cumberbatch line at the end, where he's like, mm. "All right, we're not going to go now today, but tomorrow the orders are going to come through, and it's going to be something different. And we're, yep. you know, if it's not today, it's just going to be another day. You know, mm-hmm. totally." Yeah. And I, I also found that, you know, we have so much of this scene where they are, you know, running over land and we see them kind of above the ground. But then eventually we get to a point where this is where I'm like, how did they how did they film this? Like then they transition into the trenches themselves and they're fighting inside the trenches and the camera's moving. And I'm like, I mean, obviously, this is terrible it's- that what I'm watching, but mm-hmm. like. The choreography. I'm technically is in awe of like how was this made in 1930? Like I don't understand. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so eventually, um, you know, they they come into these trenches, and when when they get inside of this trench, they have a little bit, a little bit of a break, where they're all sitting there, and we get shots of their individual faces and their individual reactions, and some guy pulls out some bread. That's covered in blood and he cuts off the blood part and he starts to eat bread and he kind of passes it down the line and this is kind of their their moment of like recuperation after the the ridiculous like the horror of what they just Mm -hmm. well he like he takes this bottle of I think it's beer and like just bashes he doesn't even pull out the cork he just bashes the top right off and passes the beer around yeah and yeah it's a I'd be, I'd be drinking alcohol. Of, I'd be like, give, yeah, me, absolutely. give me anything. Like, <laughs> well, it's a very, you know, like the sim, the sort of communion symbolism too. Of like, let's all drink the bread, <laughs> the bloody mm. bread. <laughs> yes. Or eat the bloody bread and drink the 
not wine, but beer. And, you know, we just pass through something um, that is unlike something we've ever experienced before. And it has changed us into something new. Yeah. So after this long battle sequence that came after a long week of being trapped underground in very small quarters with rats and other men and blah, 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 blah. Um, we then cut to this a little bit of a lighter moment where they are back at some sort of like encampment and um, their food is available. And we learn that this man cooked for 150 people and oh they're like, gosh. there's only 80 of us left. That's how many people, which I feel like it was probably more than that, but I don't know. Um, but it's very clear that like, the death toll was very high for the battle that we just saw. And so they have this debate over this guy's like, I can't, which almost feels like this internal battle with him of like, this food could go to other people who need it. I don't want to give you guys double rations, but, but I think it's more, I mean, it could be that, but it seemed to be more like the bureaucracy, like my orders say not to give people more than that. They're rationed. Like it doesn't seem like there's really, it's just their company. I don't know if they could really transport that food to wherever the next company is without it going bad. I think it's more a debate of like, this is technically going against regulations. And they're like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah, why on we earth would that eaten matter? for days. Like, yeah. <laughs> Please just anything, give us the freaking like, food. <laughs> let's eat in honor of the fallen men, you know? Yeah. Um, but eventually, you know, some sort of um, captain or officer or lieutenant comes over and is like, Give them the food. Also bring me some. (laughs) And so they all get to eat uh, double rations of food pretty much. And then we this leads us into this very long sequence. I wanted to like write all of it down, but I can't because it's very long. Um, But they basically have this philosophical discussion about what is the purpose of war? Why are we here? What are what are we doing? What were we told versus what's the reality And so, you know, like what we weren't really informed of the greater context of what this is. Like, I've never seen a Frenchman in my life and now I'm supposed to kill them. And they've probably never seen a German either. Like they're just a person like what's going on here. And then they have these this thought of like, okay, well, who's benefiting from this? Someone has to benefit. Like, is it the government? Is it the companies? Like, we don't know. And then eventually we get to a point where like Kat has the final word basically in this scene. And he says, you know what, regardless of all of that, what I say is if there's a problem, what we need to do is take the leaders, put them in a stadium (laughs) and let them fight it out between them. And whoever wins that wins the war. And everyone's like valid. And then (laughs) the scene's over. Um, but so, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, th- there were so many different philosophical interpretations of war that came up in that conversation, but I don't know if there's one in particular that struck you or, or anything like that. But I, I did write down one line. I mean, I wrote down a couple of them, but one of the first ones is someone says the French deserve to be punished for starting this war. And then someone else says, everyone says it's somebody else. Like, you're saying the the French deserve to be punished, but everyone says it's somebody else. And then, then it goes into this thing of how does one start a war? Well, one country offends the other. Well, what does that mean? And then this kind of spirals into like who offended who and da 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 da. Um, 
who wanted this? And I wrote down, someone said somebody wanted it and, and maybe companies cause it. Maybe it just happens and we can't explain why. Like these are all the different quotes I wrote down, but anyway. Yeah. The one character's like, oh yeah, me and the Kaiser, we're tight. You know, the Kaiser <laughs> and I didn't want this war. We were just dragged into it. Right. Um. Yeah, that was, I don't really have anything specific to say about it, except that that was a really, really good scene. And um, yeah, just really important to the themes of the, the movie. And it, it's kind of, you know, focused on not just the individual experience, but also the larger question of, well, who actually is responsible for everything that happened? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what are the the forces that put them into this place? You know, the forces that are very much outside of their own control that conspire to bring them to where they are right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so after after this sequence, we kind of enter into a new phase of the film that is a little bit less focused on capturing the combat itself and more so capturing the aftermath and the effects of combat. So, so we learn that this is where I get a little bit confused about certain characters and who's who. Uh, especially because we have two people who have their legs amputated amputated in this movie. And I'm like, okay, which one is which? But I'm pretty sure Franz is the first one who has his leg cut off. And so we see him, they're all eating food. And then they're like, well, let's go visit Franz because he needs to be visited. He's one of our guys. And he's just over there in like the, you know, the, the, the infirmary. The dressing tent, station, basically. yeah. And so they go to the infirmary and they see him laying there. And then we have this very, um, I don't know, kind of like tragic scene about what we're introduced in the film to this concept of phantom limbs because he talks about how he, you know, is still feeling his toes. And then after saying that, he looks down and he's like, oh, wait a minute. They took my leg. They didn't ask for my permission. Like, who took my leg? And um, so he starts freaking out and then... And then uh, they have this discussion about, he's like, someone stole my watch. I don't know where my watch is. And then he starts talking about, like, the men see his boots. And they're like, oh, my gosh, he's got great boots. And then they ask him, like, hey, you don't need these anymore. Like, can I have your, your boots now? And and it's like a very, like, insensitive. In, like inappropriate time yeah. to be asking <laughs> these questions. And so... Very clearly, Franz is very unwell. And so the men kind of like leave him alone, except for Paul, who stays behind and has this conversation with him. And and basically, he's watching him die, essentially. And then he starts running around. He's like, I'm going to go find a doctor. And he's like, why is there no doctor here? Like, my friend is is dying. And um, then this doctor comes over and, and the nurse is like, hey, hey, doctor, blah, blah, blah. This guy is dying. He's like, okay, great. Like who else is like, add it to the list of 500 people I've seen today. And they're like, no, no, the one with the amputated leg. And he's like, I've amputated eight legs today. I don't know who you're talking about. And, um, so it's very clear that Franz is just a number. Like he's one in a million of people who are constantly dying in this place. Um, and so this kind of leads to this incredible filmmaking transition that I'm like, as an aspiring screenwriter director, I'm like, these are the concepts that I love. But we use these boots as this, to communicate this idea that war is just a continuous cycle 
that does not end and one person dies and another one replaces them and then that person dies and another one replaces them because we see we see Franz's boots I think Paul takes them and then we have shots of someone wearing those boots just their feet walking in the trenches and then we see them fall and then we cut to seeing another set of feet walking wearing the same boots and then they fall and they die and it's just this it almost makes me think of um the the girl in the red coat in Schindler's List a little bit um but I just think it's this really brilliant and emotional way of communicating um I, I don't know like the humans that exist in war but also how they're just numbers I, I don't yeah. know the way that piece of clothing has more value and more you know lasting effects than the human life that used to inhabit it yeah I was really really moved by this entire section um I think the you know in that sort of gradual loss of innocence the way that the the friends are also excited to go and see Franz in the hospital. And I think there's a little bit of that attitude of like, oh, yeah, we're still in the, you know, in the thick of it. We have to go back. But like he's, you know, he'll be fine. And he gets he's to got, go home. Yeah, he gets to go home. That's great. We'll go and see him off. And then they get there and they realize, oh, no, he's in a really bad way. He's sick and he's in pain and he's miserable and he's not going to make it. And so it's like, you know, that one <laughs> one other little bit of potential hope or potential comfort for them is being stripped away in that moment. And the scene, the the little moment where so Muller, I think, is the character who sees the boots under Franz's bed and is like, hey, my boots are terrible and they keep giving me blisters. Franz, you're not going to need these boots anymore. Can I have them? And then sort of realizes like, you know what an insensitive thing that was to say. But then afterwards, as they're walking away, he has this little aside to Paul and he's like, I, you know, I realize that that wasn't like a really appropriate thing to say, but I really could use those boots. Like there's a sort of moment where he's like under ordinary circumstances, I would never have said that, mm -hmm. but I could really use those boots, you know? And it's just, you know, this great little moment of, you know, what the war does to us, the way that it, turns us into these sort of greedy creatures who just see, you know, we see something we need and then we try and grasp for it regardless of the the situation. And Paul is so understanding. And I think, um, I mean, many compliments to Lou Ayers, the actor who plays Paul. They establish in the early on in the film, I think during the classroom scene, that Paul is sort of the leader um, of their their group of boys and he very much seems to be the one that everyone kind of turns to for kind of guidance or encouragement or something like that and I think he does a great job of conveying that and so Paul is the one who's like I understand like this isn't really who you are and I'm gonna see if I can get those boots for you and he does um, and he's the one who is with France then when France dies and it it affects him so deeply um yeah, I, I really love that whole sequence. And the fact that it ends with this this moment where Mueller, he finally gets the boots and we see him walking on the battlefield and he's like, man, I would wear these on the f to fight the French anytime. Like the French don't stand a chance against me wearing these boots. And then immediately we see him die wearing the boots. And then we see another set of feet wearing the boots. Like it's just, yep. yeah, it's, I just love 
how you can attach so much meaning to an inanimate object, you know, and this concept of the boots is just, it communicates so much. The 2022 film, uh, from my memory, it doesn't include the boots, but it has a very similar sequence. That's actually the opening sequence of the movie with a coat Mm. where we start out following one young soldier who at least me not really being familiar with the lead actor, I thought or assume was going to be the protagonist, but then he's almost immediately cut down by a bullet and then his body is brought back and the coat is stripped off of him and it's washed and it's re-sewn and then it's put on another soldier. And it just is this whole psych idea of the cycle of, you know, the the lives themselves are um, expendable but the clothing that they're wearing is not. And that is, you know, there's this whole industrial complex that's behind sending these men out over and over again to die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, th- this is a long episode and I knew it was going to be going in, but I'm just going to kind of list off a few final things and then we can dive into it. Um, sure. Because th- th- there's a lot here, but just for the sake of time, I'm trying to like, you know, shorten. So, um, so we have a sequence after this, after the boots where we do see um, Paul basically kills his first um, enemy, I guess, like in hand to hand combat, like up close, he kills him up close, but it's a very slow death. Because he's stuck with this man in this, like, it's not a trench. It's almost like a bomb hole or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And this man is, like, groaning and moaning. And then eventually he gets to a point where he's like, will you just die already? Like, I can't, I can't keep listening to this. Like, this is, this is torture, you know? And it's, and so they have this moment between the two of them. And um, eventually, you know, the, the Frenchman does die. Um, and, but clearly this takes a toll on Paul. He ends up having a conversation with Kat about, um, you know, Kat's like, oh, it was, you know, your first, your first one. And, and you have to, you know, you can't take it to heart that much because you got to just kind of let it go and, you know, all those things. And then, um, after this, we have this moment where Paul, it's not Paul. No, it is Paul. It's Paul and like, a few other guys they're they're bathing in this river because they're finally able to like get clean and then they see these french women across the way and they're doing ridiculous things to try to impress them like kicking like maniacs in the water like hey look at this i'm like what are you doing you're just kicking water like okay cool and uh these women are clearly like toying with them but obviously like we don't like we have no interest in engaging with you really beyond this interaction, but then they take out food and they're like, look, 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 we have food. And the women are like, Oh, this changes things. Like (laughs) y'all have food. Okay. And so come on over. Sure. Bring the food. Yeah. So, um, basically like there's this one commander who's like, Hey, y'all can't cross that line. I don't know what you're doing, but you can't go over there and interact with them. And the men are like, Oh, and so basically they make an arrangement with cat cat, gets that officer drunk that night at a pub oh it's, so well it's not actually that officer it's one of them so there's there's four soldiers it's paul and three others who are there when they see the three women and then one of the soldiers is like hey i was the one who had the idea of the food and so i'm gonna go with the blonde woman and you can fight over the other two and paul and so to reduce him from the group so it's one man per woman paul asks cat to get him drunk so that he can't go with them 
Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Um, oh, and I want to make sure I don't jump over uh, before they actually go bathing in the river. There is this moment between Paul and I don't remember which other guy it is, but they see this poster of a man and a woman oh, yeah. on the wall mm-hmm. and they're basically talking to a fake woman on this poster and um, they end up ripping it in half to take the dude in the poster off. Like, so he's not <laughs> like with her. Um, so yeah, they have that interaction. Um, so basically one, so they, w- one of the guys gets an officer drunk that night so that the three of them can actually go over to meet these women uh, at their place of residence, I guess. Um, and so they bring the women food and basically in exchange, the women have sex with them. Um, we don't, you know, see it happen, but we don't need to. Um, it's, we have it's very this, obvious what's happening. Yeah. This yeah. is a pre- very much a pre-code film. You know, there's yes. there's some there's violence, you know, in the, the decapitated, not decapitated, um, dismembered hands that are hanging off the line. There's nudity <laughs> when they're bathing. Uh, we can see their bottoms. And yeah, there's very, very obviously the women are prostitutes and the the men sleep with them. You know, it's very explicit about that's that's what the soldiers experience was like. Yeah. And so uh, we have this sequence with the camera basically in the room after Paul and this woman, uh, one of the women have had sex and, and the camera is it, in the bottom left corner of the frame. We see the end of the bed. But other than that, we just see kind of a window and light coming through the window. And we, we hear this conversation that Paul is having with this woman in the background of basically saying, like, I know I'll never see you again, but you'll always have a place in my heart because da 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 da. And basically just like making a proclamation of extreme affection that <laughs> I'm like, I mean, I get it. It is probably genuine mm-hmm. in the moment, but also like this is a transactional yeah. thing that just happened. Yeah. Like this isn't. Well, doesn't he say something about like, he's like, I'm never going to see you again. And I probably wouldn't even recognize you if I did. But mm-hmm. also, I'm never going to forget you, which I thought yeah. was an, an oddly sweet thing to say in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah. This experience is very meaningful to him in the comfort that it provides for him, even though it is also, as you say, very much transactional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um so yeah, we we have that moment, and then we are back on the battlefield. Paul gets shot in the gut, and because of that, he ends up being sent to an infirmary, um, and he is there for quite a while, and this man who's in the bed next to him, uh, who's been there longer than Paul has, basically informs him that there is a room over there to our left that we call the dying room, because whenever you see people put onto a stretcher, their clothes taken off the hook on the wall... They go through that room and they never come back. That's the dying room. And so we get we get this moment where Paul is put on a stretcher. They take his clothes and he starts freaking out. He's like, I'm I'm not dying. Like, I, I'm 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 not dying. I'm OK. I'm recovering. Please don't take me in there. Don't take me in there. And they're like, we're taking you to the bandaging room. Like, we're not taking we're taking you to the bandaging room. And he's like, he's freaking out. He's like, no, 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 please don't like don't take me. Um, but they do end up taking him, in fact, to the bandage room, and then they do bring him back. And he's like, "Hey, hey, look, look, I made it back. I made it back. Like I didn't, I didn't die." <laughs> um, and so, so yeah. Anyway, he basically goes back to the infirmary. He apparently heals well enough that he is sent home on leave. Um, he gets home. We get to meet his mother and his sister, um, who 
very clearly love him and care for him, but are very unaware of what, of the true depth of what's happening um, to soldiers on the battlefield. And he doesn't really know how to explain it and express it. And, but he also doesn't want to like worry his mother who's already sick. And so he's kind of like very much so glossing over what he's actually been through. Um, and so he ends up going to a pub with his father who is sitting with a bunch of assholes in my opinion. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and um, yep. they're objectively assholes. They're basically telling Paul what he experienced on the battlefield. Yeah. Here's and, what should be happening, Paul. Yeah. Like, you're not doing it right. It's like the epitome of mansplaining, but to another man <laughs> yeah. who's, I'm just like, mm-hmm. and so they're literally, they're telling him what happened to him. They're like, no, no, no. This is like what? I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. But Paul just feels very silenced and like he doesn't have a power to speak. And I also think he's very aware that even if he says something, it's not going to change anyone's mind. And so we have this moment where someone literally tells him like, no, 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 you don't actually know. Like all you see is what you saw, but I'm looking at the big picture. Like here, look at this map. This is what needs to happen. Like we need to, we need to put people here and they need to attack here. And if we do that, then the war will be over. (laughs) And it's like, that's not how this works. Oh I goodness. hate you, and you are the reason why war exists. You are the reason why war lasts so long. You are the reason why this is a problem. Like, I hate you, and you suck. Um, so basically, it gets to a point where all of them, all the men at the table start debating and looking at this map of like, no, 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 this is how we need to strategize, and this is how we need to do it. And Paul just stands up and silently walks away because he's like, this is, I'm not, I'm not going to engage with this. So... Anyway, he leaves and then we have a moment where he goes back to his classroom where it all began and that same propaganda teacher is still there giving Giving. literally the same exact speech that we heard in the beginning, trying to rile up these boys to enlist and go to the army. And like how the 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 kids in the classroom this time around, they look like babies. So young. They are so they're like thirteen. Mm-hmm. Yes, which Paul literally says in that quote I read in the beginning, like now they're sending babies, you know, like what what's happening. And so Paul basically gives this speech trying to explain yeah. what the reality is so that these children will not go. Mm-hmm. Well, and- it's like the teacher is like, you've been over there. Tell them, tell them how glorious it is. You know, like he fully expects Paul to be like, yeah, you know, follow in my footsteps. It's grand. And so Paul has to navigate, like, how do I convey enough of the truth? But, you know, in a way that is not going to completely turn them all off. I don't know. Yeah. And so these boys are responding by like screaming coward, like you're a coward and all these things. And Paul's like, that's very easy to say from your fancy little chair here in this classroom. Like you don't actually know. And he has these these quotes about like it's, you know, there's nothing honorable about dying for your country. Like if you can choose between dying for your country and not dying for your country, don't die for your country. (laughs) Like, you know, and so it's this very grand anti-war final speech that he gives of of just like the reason I'm speaking up now is because these are boys who will actually go there if I don't say something and so maybe if I say something I can deter 
a few of them and that's enough, you know? Um, but clearly what he's saying is not taken very well. Um, and so he basically, he, I don't remember in what context he communicates this. Maybe you can remind me, Geneva, mm-hmm. but he ends up telling somebody at some point somewhere, <laughs> um, <laughs> that he's like, maybe it was in the classroom. I don't know, but just very clearly states like, I don't belong here. I need to go back. Oh, oh no. He literally says it in the quote I read in the yeah, beginning of this episode. Quote, yeah. <laughs> um, he's like, I don't belong here in the military. That's the world that makes sense to me now because that's where like, we know the reality. We know the pot. We know the outcome. Like, and we are living according to this code and nothing out here makes sense because all y'all are nuts and I'm going back. And so yeah. he goes back. He meets his beloved friend, Kat, who we've seen from the beginning. And the two of them, um, they kind of go out on this journey by themselves. What are they going to do? Geneva? Well, he meets up with Kat who's looking for food. Food, food, food. Right, right, yeah. right. Okay. So they're looking for food kind of out in the open. And then every once in a while, like a bomb drops. And so they're falling to the ground and then they get up and they're like, okay, cool. Let's keep talking. And over the course of this conversation, Paul is basically like declaring his friend love for Kat of just like, you're the only one that's left. Well, it's a, important too, like when he gets back, because, you know, he's been gone for a few months because he was in the hospital and then he went home on leave. And when he gets back, he recognizes no one. Yes. In his mm-hmm. unit. He goes to the second company and it's all a bunch of 16 year old boys who, you know, are just completely you know, he he has no idea who any of them are. And at first he's worried that everyone has been killed. But then he finds um, Jodan, I think is the name. Well, there's that one really tall soldier, Jodan. Oh, think. yeah. And mm-hmm. then Jodan tells them that Kat is still alive. And so he does still have these two, well, mainly Kat, you know, this mm-hmm. connection to the unit. But other than that, it's all just fresh new recruits who are just grist for the, you know, for the slaughter. Food yeah. For the slaughter. I forget the phrase. Yeah. Um, yes. So, yeah. So he goes out looking for Kat and bombs drop every once in a while. But, you know, for them, it's like, well, another day at the job. You yeah. know? <laughs> and so they fall to the ground and then they get back up and they're having this very sweet conversation. Um, but then eventually a bomb does fall that uh, breaks Kat's shin. And Kat's like, oh, God damn it. Like, my shin's broken. Ah, I guess I need to go to the infirmary. Yeah. Well, they have that and... whole joke about, like, the war won't be over until they finally get Kat. And so he's right. like, you know, they haven't got me yet. Well, he's like, he's like, they, he's like, they ha- they have to fully get me. Like, this mm-hmm. is not, this doesn't count, basically. Right. <laughs> and so Paul's like, okay, it's fine. I'll pick you up. I'll carry you back. And so he picks Kat up and and he continues to talk to him as they're walking and is telling him, you know, again, continuing to declare his friendship love of like, you're the only one I have left. You're my one true friend. You know, you're the reason I came back basically to be with you because nothing makes sense anymore and da 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 da. And uh, another bomb drops at one point and uh, Paul picks him back up because initially when he picked him up, they were having like a back and forth conversation. Um, But then the set and then, but then the next time a bomb falls and he picks Kat up again, Kat's not responding. And Paul thinks it's because he he explains to the doctor later. He's like, oh, no, no, he's he just passed out. Like, he's just unconscious. It's OK, because he he brings him to an infirmary. He walks him all the way there. He drops him on this bed. And the doctor's like, 
this guy's dead, dude. Like, I don't know what you expect me to do for him. And Paul's like, no, no, he's just unconscious. Like, he's fine. He only broke his shin. Like, it's it's no big deal. Um, but he does, you know, it does eventually dawn on him that Kat is, in fact, dead. Yeah. Well, he and finds so, some blood on the back. I think the idea is the second bomb. There's a piece of shrapnel that hit him in the back of the head or the neck. And that's what what killed him because Paul puts his hand under Kat's head and brings it out and there's blood on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this leads us to our final scenes where Paul is uh, in a trench kind of looking through a little um, like view hole or whatever and he's holding a rifle and he sees this and he's like in the line of fire and um, he sees this butterfly in front of him on the ground. And, and we, we learned when he went home that he has this butterfly collection in his old room um, that he and his sister used to collect butterflies together. Um, and so it's this sort of, you know, symbol of kind of who he used to be, the sort of beauty of, of who he was back when before his innocence had been destroyed. Which reminds me of that point. I think Kat tells Paul something when Paul comes back after leave about another one of their comrades who left because he'd been talking about like his family owns this tree farm and, and he wanted to oh, like the cherry go blossoms. back. And, yeah. yeah. And so he chose to go home when he had the opportunity, you know, and there's like no shame cast upon him by. Well, actually, I when they tell that story, I think they're telling it as like he tried to go home, but he was caught and presumably executed for desertion. Oh, oh I missed that. Okay. I, I, I believe think- you. I just missed it. Um, But yeah, so. Anyway, so he reaches his hand out for this butterfly and the last shot we see of him is just his hand reaching for this butterfly and we hear a gunshot, we hear a bullet basically hitting flesh and his hand falls to the ground and Paul is dead. Um, And then after that, like I mentioned before, we have this final shot of these faces of these men that we saw in the very beginning, the boys from this class who were leaving the truck the first time they got to the to the battlefield and they're all looking back at this truck kind of wondering will that will we actually be here alive tomorrow for that truck to pick us up again like what is happening and so that's the final shot of the film um so yeah that's kind of a lot of things that i just went through but i wanted to kind of like close off so i do have a question for you um what do you think Paul's motivation was in going back to the classroom? That's a good question. I feel like he was curious to know exactly what he ends up finding, which is, is that teacher still there? And is he still spouting the same propaganda that he Mm. had been? Mm -hmm. I wonder if, um, because it's been so long since I I read the novel, I'd be interested to reread that and find out if that section is in the novel in the same way that it is in the movie because it might explain his motivations more specifically but that was the sense that I got that he was kind of curious in an almost self-sabotaging way to know is everything still going on the way it was before I left are people still being indoctrinated in the way that I was and he discovers that yes they are Hmm. (sighs) yeah do you have any did you think, think something similar did you have any other ideas about that no I mean I don't know. Part of me felt like he went there with some sort of hope of mm. of thinking like 
they're not going to be talking about war in the same way. Like all of these other people are talking about it in a way that makes no sense to me. But maybe in this place where they're recruiting children, they'll actually be honestly telling them. I mean, obviously, this is a classroom and it's not like an official. I mean, maybe it is. I don't. Maybe the government's paying. I don't know. Um, but I think he was maybe hoping that for the children that are actually the the like the target of trying to get to go to war, maybe in that place, they'll be speaking honestly about what they're getting into so that they can make an informed decision now that it's been years. Cause kind of when he first signed up, they were like the first wave. So they didn't really know, but yeah. now years later they should know. And so I almost felt like he went with a hope of seeing like, Oh, you know, they're talking about this differently. And I feel like his, the strong reactions that he gave were responding to the lack of change of how mm-hmm. they're talking to children about what's going on. Um, I don't have any like evidence to prove that. That's just my sentiment um, given like what I think about this character. Um, but there's no like explicit statement of this is why Paul is going to the classroom. Um, but yeah, I felt like he had this hope and it was shattered and he was like, well, fuck this I'm going back like this is the final straw I can't stay here because this is all nonsense and everyone here is dead anyway so I might as well die with purpose doing something than staying here being like a zombie who's perpetuating or not perpetuating but like living in this world where people are perpetuating death um but yeah I don't know anything else closing out this uh movie regarding his leave at home or going back and interacting with cat or the butterfly or anything (laughs) just regarding the leave at home it's such a tiny moment but when he's in the pub with those his father and those other assholes the assholes (laughs) (laughs) the one guy who's like at least you in the army they feed you well you know we don't get good food here but you you soldiers you get the best of everything and the like the like paul doesn't really i don't think he says anything in response to the but the look of just shock and disdain that he gives him of like oh wow you you really know nothing do you you know you know nothing you know nothing john snow you know nothing <laughs> yeah i do know yeah. some things <laughs> anyway uh, that was a um, terrible john snow impression <laughs> i typically have a better impression but anyway sorry you were prepared um did not yeah, think that would come up in this episode <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of like other things to say about the ending. I mean, it's just, it's such an incredibly effective ending. It is very, it's kind of abrupt. Um, Mm -hmm. but I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. Cause like I said before, Kat was very much his last connection to the idea of even wanting to go on, you know, his, all of his friends have been killed. His dream of, you know, maybe I can get out of here and go home and that will be fine has now been shattered. There's nothing for him at home. Cat is the only link that he has to the world of the living. And when Cat is gone, then there's nothing left for him. And so that shot of him just look look sitting in the trench, like, you know, doing the bare minimum of what he's supposed to do, which is sit there with that rifle. But the look on his face, like all of the life is completely gone from it. You know, everything behind the eyes is gone. It's really, really well done. And then that that reaching for the butterfly, which I think is not in the novel and was added for the film. I might be wrong about that, but I think it's, you know, it's a very, um, like, it's a really good visual choice for that idea of, you know, the very last 
glimpse of life and hope is just suddenly snuffed out. And, Mm -hmm. you know, a person who is a a whole vital person with hope and ambitions and dreams and gifts and abilities is just gone. Mm -hmm. The true tragedy why does war exist? Um, <laughs> I remember when we read this novel in um, my sophomore year English class, the the start of the very first class that we did on it, my professor, professor my teacher, played that song, uh, War, huh, what is it good for? I don't remember who actually sings that song. I don't song, know that song. You know, oh, that was the first time I ever heard that song. Yeah, oh. great song. But yeah, he played that for us because that's very much the theme of the novel. Ah, okay. Um, all right. Can I, can I move on a little bit to our closing section? Absolutely. Okay, cool. I mean, I feel like we could talk for two hours about like the implications Mm -hmm. and the meanings of war and all that stuff, but (laughs) then it'll get political and yeah, this is not the time nor the place. (laughs) Um, but yeah. So, okay. Closing out a little bit. So as far as awards and legacy, like I said in the beginning, this was the third best picture winner uh, of all time. So that's pretty cool. Um, But so this movie was nominated for four Oscars total, of which it won best picture and best director. Um, And then additionally, it was nominated for best writing and best cinematography, which... Geneva, can you look up what won Best Cinematography this year? Because what the, like, what? Yeah, what else? What the what? Like, I don't understand. Uh, Let's see. Also, did sound mixing exist at this time? Because this should have won. I'm assuming (laughs) that category didn't exist at the time, but Uh, because sound was such a new, new thing. Yeah. um, One was a film I have never heard of. Apparently, it's a documentary. It's called With Bird at the South Pole. It's a documentary about Rear Admiral Richard E. Byrd and his first quest to the South Pole. I've never seen it, but the Academy was wrong. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, okay, so this movie has a 91 on Metacritic, which is uncalled for. It should have a 100. What's wrong with you people? Yeah. Rotten Tomatoes has a 98. Who are the 2% of people that are like, yeah, this movie, not (laughs) The one contrarian who's like, no, no, no. Yeah, this movie's just not good, fam. I'm like, what? Who who are you? Like, I don't know. Um, Actually, I should send it to you. Uh, One of the original 1930s reviews that I did find had uh, a quote from like a, a letter that Goebbels wrote to like the German people basically saying like this is a this is anti-Germany like you have to but it's really interesting I (laughs) highly recommend look up like movie reviews from this time and just Mm -hmm. like historical articles about this they're really interesting sure um anyway so I also pulled two reviews and uh actually no I pulled three reviews so the first one is from Rob Humanick at Slant Magazine and this was written in 2012 And he says, anti-war statements of the cinema in the subsequent 80 years have occasionally surpassed Lewis Milestone's technically and artistically groundbreaking film, but few can match it for relentless despair or or elemental fury, both on and off the battlefield, which I agree with that. Um, Yes. So the next one comes from Martin Chilton from The Telegraph. This one was written in 2015. And he says, all quiet on the Western Front remains an an essential piece of social history and a heart-wrenching film. I agree. More people should watch this movie. Mm -hmm. Everyone should watch this movie. Agreed. Um, 
Is it a is it an Americanized Hollywood version? Should it be made in Germany with German people speaking German? Yes, but you know. I mean, if if you changed that, I, I I don't know. I I think this movie is really excellent, and obviously it's made by Americans and it's for an American audience. I don't think if you made the same movie by the same people but with German actors and dialogue, it would be reaching the same audience that it was intended to reach but um yeah yeah um and then this last one actually comes from a 1930s review so this is from someone named Mordain Hall at the New York Times I know dang uh at the New York Times and he says Often the scenes are of such excellence that if they were not audible, one might believe that they were actual motion pictures of activities behind the lines in the trenches and in no man's land. So that kind of taps into what you were saying at the beginning, Geneva, of like some of this looks like it's actual real footage, Um, but it's not. So, yeah. Anyway, final thoughts, Geneva. I'm really glad I watched this movie. It's really excellent and really haunting and i love the <laughs> the i i kept thinking about uh, ivan's childhood while we were watching it as well mm. which is also you know excellent and haunting uh anti-war film that you've introduced on this podcast but in a very different way with a different focus but can um, people tell i don't like war <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> can't imagine why hmm. um yeah yeah I'm, I'm so glad that i got the recognition that it it got at the time and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the social history of what happened around the time that it was coming out is really fascinating. Um, But yeah, I agree with you. I wish it was more widely seen today. Yeah. Which is why I was like, that's why I boycotted the 2022 one. I was like, people (laughs) need to watch the original because people are going to watch this and they're not going to know there's a 1930s film and this is going to be the memory of like, no, um you should i would be very curious to hear i mean again like i said at the beginning having seen the 2022 version i don't think it's nearly as good as the 1930s version but i i do think there are interesting things about it so i'd be very curious to hear your thoughts on it even if you weren't very positive on it overall yeah i have been convinced to watch it at this point because i do think there is validity to like a German person mm-hmm. trying to tell a German perspective, especially given the context and all the information that we have now. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Anyway, did you, sorry, this is just a random thought. I can't remember if you mentioned this at the beginning. Have you ever read the novel? Did you ever have to read it for class? I did not have to read it for class. So I actually okay. have not read the book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's um, very good as well. Yeah. So as far as me, um, it's honestly still that same takeaway from the first time that sequence of them being in that like underground um, trench cave thing and just like the technical achievements of that and like just seeing this dirt falling from the ceiling and all of that. It's just really impressive and the bombing outside and the sound mixing of it, but also all of the different emotional responses that we're having wall down there that really just communicates the horrors of what these men are going through even when they're not specifically fighting on the battlefield they're still having horrible experiences that no one should have to have um yeah I don't know that that long sequence of them just in that like underground uh almost bunker sort of thing is really it's still very impactful for me so that was kind of my main mental image that stuck with me after I watched it the first time. And uh, 
I think it's going to stick with me this time as well. But also yeah. the concept of the boots. I really latched on yeah. to the boots this time around as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was yeah. really well done. I'm trying to think if there's like a single moment or scene that's going to stick with me more than others. I feel there are just a lot of little moments that stuck out to me while I was watching. So time will tell, like what are the things that are going to um, stay with me the longest, but there, there's a lot in this film to, to chew over and to think over um, afterwards. Yeah. Um, so all that being said, Geneva, can you tell us what we're watching next week? Yes, we are um, shifting gears, <laughs> getting into the Christmas season with one of my favorite Christmas um, rom-com drums. <laughs> we're going <laughs> into the 1940s with The Shopper on the Corner, um, which I'm very excited to rewatch. And for those of you who don't know, uh, The Shopper on the Corner was later remade as You've Got Mail. So if you're a fan of You've Got Mail and you want some Jimmy Stewart and you want some Christmas time vibes, uh, Shop Around the Corner. It's really fun. Sorry. I feel like, <laughs> I don't know. I just like for, I, my, my like thought that comes to my mind every single time Jimmy Stewart is mentioned now is just that scene of like, Oh, but I I don't know if I could learn how to read. Oh, of course you could read. Oh, sure. You could learn to read. <laughs> it's from uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Bell. Yeah, I'm like, oh, my ago. gosh. Chill. chill. <laughs> oh, Jimmy Stewart. Chill yeah. out. Um, <laughs> no one, no one, no one speaks like him, truly. I know. It's like I've seen him in so many movies, but that line in particular is like, the jimmiest of all jimmiest <laughs> of all ever Stewart. said <laughs> like, I, I think sometimes like with age he just got even more his speech patterns just got even more so you know he's like well people like it so i might as really <laughs> lean might into as well it really <laughs> lean into it it's like people who like get more southern as they age or something like uh-huh. that yeah yeah um okay cool so yeah next week yeah. we're talking about shop around the corner so come join us for that and uh yeah i i think it'll be a good time so okay bye everybody bye thanks for listening if you want to get in touch with us you can email us at yourpickpod at gmail.com our theme song was composed by joel rushton and our podcast graphic was designed by karishin if you like the show and want to hear more please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform we're excited to have you on this journey with us until next time